I would invite you to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. This morning, the Gospel of Luke in the second chapter. When you look at the story of the birth of Christ, the story is obviously made up of a lot of supporting actors and actresses in different roles. And I want to preach on one of those characters that is found in this story. In a couple of weeks, I am preaching in a Bible conference for Brother Knox over in Deland, Florida. And every year, uh, he assigns the preachers that will be there, either a text or a subject. And in January, his theme is New Testament women. So every preacher has been given uh, one or two or three different New Testament women that he's asked us to preach on. Now, it'd be wonderful if he would do give me somebody that I have already preached on, like the woman at the well, John 4, or the woman taken in the dark. But no, that would be too simple. And so I have been assigned that week to preach one message on Anna and one message on Mary, the mother of, jo- of, of Jesus. So I figured this morning you're going to hear one of them because I've had to be studying those two. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 36, verse 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Interesting little statement in verse 37, the middle of that verse, which says she departed not from the temple. I don't usually give titles to my messages, but I, um, if I was to put a tag to this text, I think I would call it, there was an old woman who lived in a pew. I think that's what I would call this. <laughs> you know, when you think of how momentous the birth of Christ was in the history of the world, it's a wonder that only two gospel writers even Recorded. There's, of course, Old Testament prophecies that predicted that it was coming. But the actual birth is only found in two chapters in Matthew and then two chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Mark doesn't say anything about his birth or his childhood because Mark emphasizes the servanthood of Christ and no one is bothered with how a servant was born or how he got John doesn't say anything about his birth because John's writing about the eternal Son of God who had no beginning. So he says nothing about his childhood. Matthew gives us the historical side, making the case for his legal right to the throne of David. Luke gives us the human side, writing about the Son of Man. That's why in Matthew chapter 1 you have a genealogy, and the genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham and David, he's the king of the Jews. But Luke takes his all the way back to Adam, the first man. In Luke chapter 1, we have the birth of John 
the Baptist. Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth, she is there, and we're told how she conceived by the Holy Ghost and how she went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth several months during that pregnancy. But most of Luke chapter 1 focuses on John, who would be the Baptist, who would be the forerunner. We're told about his parents who are up in age. They have no children, and an angel appears, and Elizabeth conceives, and Zacharias can't speak, and the child is born in honor. It is all about John in chapter number 1. Then in Luke chapter 2, we have the birth of Christ. But the actual birth of Christ only takes up 20 verses of Luke chapter 1. There is nothing in Luke's story about wise men. There's nothing about Herod slaughtering the babies in Bethlehem, the family having to escape down to Egypt. All of those details are found in Matthew's account. But Luke takes you to the baby in the manger. That's where we read about it. But then in verse number 21, there's a very common scene for Jews that day, and that is when Jesus is eight days old, his mother and Joseph take him to the temple to be circumcised. That was a traditional Jewish thing that they did on eight days. Then, according to the law, whenever a Jewish mother gave birth to a baby boy, she was ceremonially unclean for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, she would go to the temple. She would offer a small sacrifice, and she would be ceremonial clean. It was a ceremony is what it was. And, and so Luke 1 and verse 2 and verse 22 takes us to that scene. It says, when the days of her purification was finished according to the law of Moses. While they are there, Joseph would have paid a small ransom price of five shekels. Every Jew did that for the firstborn son who was not a Levite. If he was born of the tribe of Levite, then he is designated for or dedicated to priestly service, temple service, and the half-shekel tax does not apply to him. But if he's not of the tribe of Levite, the firstborn, reminding them that the firstborn belongs to God. And Joseph would have paid that at this time for Jesus. It is at this temple scene, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, that we're introduced in this chapter to a very old man and a very old woman. And I say that respectfully, but they were old. They were very devout. They were very hopeful. Both of them are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. We find them only in Luke's gospel. They're there for only just a few verses and then they are gone from the pages of Scripture. There is no prophetic indication or prophecy or any sign to be looking for them, and there is no mention of them afterward elsewhere in the Scriptures. And it's really best to set them against the religious temperament of the nation of Israel at that time. The nation of Israel has just come through what we call the 400 silent years. We call that 400 silent years the period between the Old and the New Testaments. And we call it silent years because during those 400 years, God was silent. There was no preacher. There was no prophet. There was no prophecy. There was no angelic vision. There was no word from God. He was silent to the nation for 400 years. And as you can imagine, 400 silent years, the nation has become apostate. They are religious, but they are lost as a whole. They have a lot of religion. They're keeping all the rituals and all the traditions and all the ceremonies, but there is no God in any of it. 
But in spite of that apostasy, God always has a remnant. In that unbelieving, in that apostate nation, or still after hundreds of years, there's still just a few people who have hope that the words that the prophet spoke centuries ago would still come to pass. Not many, but a few. A few who lived every day with some hope and some expectancy in their heart. They believed God. They believed scriptures. They, they were devout. They were faithful. And they held on to the promises that a Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the deliverer of our nation. And their testimony, their life gave witness to what they believed. You will find in Luke's gospel, by the way, that Luke was big on the two or three principles. And they always paired witnesses together. And in Luke's gospel, we have an old man and an old woman paired together as a witness to their faith in the promises of God. First, there is Simeon. I don't have time to preach on Simeon. But you'll read about Simeon in verse 25 down to verse number 35. You'll have to read it at another time. But Simeon walks onto the scene. He walks off the scene just as quickly as he came. Simeon was a common name. In fact, it was a name of one of the tribes. We don't know that he was from that tribe. And Simeon's name has a wonderful meaning. It means God has heard. Simeon has prayed all of his life for the coming of the Messiah. And one day God spoke to him and said, Simeon, I have heard your prayer. And Simeon longed for one thing. Get this. He only wanted one thing in life. He wanted to see the Messiah come before he died. The only thing that he wanted was he wanted to see Jesus before he died. By the way, that would be a wonderful thing to have in our heart, wouldn't it? The only thing I want for Christmas is for Jesus to come. Simeon was not a member of the Religious clergy, he doesn't belong to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's not a scribe, he's not a doctor of the law. He is just an average older man who longs to see the Messiah come in his lifetime. He, he believes the scripture, he is devout in his living, he has hope in his heart. And the Bible says even that he had the Spirit of God come upon him. And one day the Spirit of God came to Simeon and said, Simeon, I'm going to let you live long enough to see your hope. I'm going to let you live long enough to see them. But before you die, I'm going to let you live to see him come. Now that's rare information. Can you imagine living knowing that you won't die till Jesus comes again? I mean, if the Spirit of God told you and you believed it in your heart, that I'm going to let you live. I'm going to let you live till the rapture. I'm going, to, I'm going to let you live. You're not going to die till Jesus comes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You wouldn't have to worry about diet and exercise, eating right, getting cancer, going to the doctor. Huh? I mean, the doctor says, I'm a little concerned about this high cholesterol. Oh, I'm not worried about it. No, no, I ain't going to die till Jesus gets here. Eat all the Krispy Kreme you want. It's not going to hurt you. I, I think that Jesus will come in my lifetime. But I don't know that. But Simeon knew. He lived knowing that Christ would come in his lifetime. He didn't know the date. 
but he lived in a state of expectancy. And by the way, you and I ought to live with the same frame of mind. I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime, but it could be in my lifetime. And I live every day with the same hope that Simeon had in his heart. Maybe today is the day that he comes back. Then it comes time for the meeting. Simeon is walking across the courtyard and the temple and maybe he comes to pray and he comes to the court of women. And the reason why he comes to the court of women, that's as far as women could come on the temple complex. And he encounters a young couple, Joseph and Mary. And there is Mary holding that little baby, baby Jesus in her heart. They did not even know that Simeon even exists in the world. But Simeon, that old man, walks up. And I don't know how the conversation started. But somehow Simeon knew. When he saw that baby, he knew. Something inside of him said, that's him. That's him. I think it was the Holy Spirit inside of him. And Simeon reaches out and he takes that little baby, 40 days old, and he takes that baby in his arms. He's holding that little baby, and tears well up in his eyes. And I, and I think, I, I think, if you can put yourself there, I, I think of Simeon holding that little baby, and Simeon kissing that baby, and as the song says, that he kissed the face of God. And, and, and I don't know what he said to Joseph and Mary, but Simeon looked up to heaven with God's Son in his arms and thanked God for sending. I mean, he is, he is holding God in his arms, looking up to heaven, thanking God for coming in the form of a baby, thanking the Father for sending his son. Now, now I'm on the other side of the story. You see, you see, Simeon knew a little bit from the prophets, but Simeon did not know everything that I know on the other side of the Bible. You see, I know who he is, and I know why he came, and I know what he did. I know what he did for me, and I know that he saved sinners and changed his life, and I know that he's coming again. I know everything that Simeon knew, and I know so much more. And it's interesting to me, you'll have to, I wish I was preaching on Simeon, but it's interesting that when you look at Simeon, when he held that baby in his arms, here was the very first thing that he said. Look at verse number 28 just quickly. Then took he him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, here's the first thing Simeon said. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. There is nothing else in this world that I need to stay around here for. There is nothing else that I have to live for. I'm ready to go home because I have gotten a glimpse of Jesus. Nothing in the world. (laughs) There's nothing in the world that I'm interested in. I'm ready to go home because I have seen the Savior. And I want to tell you something. When you and I get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, it'll make this world so unappealing, so unattractive, and there's nothing down here to hold me. I'm ready to go home since I've seen Jesus. Somebody said, I'm packed up and ready to go. Well, what are you packing that you need to take with you? I'm just ready to go. Now, Simeon's holding that little baby in his arms. He's blessing God. And another character comes into the scene. An old woman. 
She's been a widow most of her life. And it is that very instant that Anna comes on the scene. And somehow she recognizes that this child is the Messiah. And she begins prophesying to everybody around her that he has come. Like Simeon, she is found only in Luke's gospel. She is found right here. Her her entire story takes three verses. That's all that it takes. And as soon as she is on the scene, she disappears from the scene, and she is never heard from again. Her little contribution to the story takes only three verses, and then she is gone forever. Now, here's what we know about Anna from, from the text. Her name, obviously, is Anna, which, by the way, is the Greek version of Hannah. There's a Hannah in the Old Testament, who, by the way, was in the temple praying for a child, when she received a special word from God. Anna's praying for a miracle just like Hannah was praying for in the Old Testament. And both of them saw their prayers answered in the temple. Now this Anna has married at an early age, but seven years into her marriage, her husband has died, leaving her a widow. The Bible says in verse 37 that she is a widow of about four score and four years. Now, some believe that that means that she was a widow for 84 years. Some believe that she was a widow at the age of 84. She was 84, and she's been a widow for a long time. You can take it any way that you want to. But she's been a widow for most of her life. By the way, she's in the temple serving God. And I would just say to our our, our elderly saints this morning that you're never too old to serve God. In fact, her greatest contribution came later in life. She's the daughter of Phanuel. Nothing is said about him. She is from the tribe of Asher. Now that's interesting because Asher is supposed to be one of the lost tribes of Israel that belonged to the northern kingdom taken into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And the northern kingdom has been gone for hundreds and hundreds of years by this time. But she is, a, she is from the tribe of Asher. So evidently they are not lost tribes. They still know where they are from. And the Bible says she is a prophetess. Now that doesn't mean that she's a preacher. doesn't mean that she even predicted the future. She is simply one who speaks of the truth of the things that the Spirit of God has revealed to her. And we'll see that in just a minute. There's only three women in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who prophesied. When God can't find a man to do a job, he'll use a woman to do the job. So here we have Simeon and Anna, and they are testifying to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. May it interest you that in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke always pairs two witnesses together, always. And he usually puts a man and a woman together. It's just one of the features in his gospel. So just about every key point where there is a man, Luke also mentions a woman. So in Luke 1, he mentions that the angel comes to, to Zacharias, and then the angel comes to Mary, man and woman. He mentions Simeon, and then he mentions Anna, man and woman. He talks about Jesus healing a demon-possessed man, and immediately after that, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Always confused me, but he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He talks about Jesus healing a crippled man on the Sabbath. And immediately after, he heals a crippled woman on another Sabbath. Over and over and over, it's a man and a woman. 
So Luke pairs Anna and Simeon together as two witnesses. Both of them are up in their years. Both of them are devout. Both of them are waiting on God. They're both in the temple. They both have the hope of the promise of salvation. They both recognize Jesus as the promised one. They both voice that and they thank God for what God has shown them. And Luke emphasizes more of what Simeon said and more of who Anna was. And there's something very something very simple about Luke and Anna. There's a simplicity to it. Simeon, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. But was there anything else in his life that mattered? Was there anything else about him that we need to know? What were his politics? I wonder if he accomplished anything. Build a business, have an empire, make a lot of money. I'm just wondering, is there anything else to know about Simeon. And the only thing that we're told about this old man is that he's a righteous man that really longed to see the Messiah. Anna marries at a young age, lives with the husband seven years. She's, she, she is widowed. She, we assume that she never had any children. She's living at the church house. She's praying and she's fasting and she's waiting for Jesus. And I'm sure if we dug into her story, there would be more to her story than that. But there's nothing else that is important about her. She devotes her entire life to the temple and even to a temple that wouldn't let her come all the way in. And there is something about them that is so simple and unencumbered and and free. And I would suggest to you that this time of the year especially, it would do good for us if we had a more simple, unencumbered, freer, existence. We have too many distractions. We have too many gadgets. Your kids have too many toys. Getting ready to get a whole lot more toys. They can't play with the toys they got now. We're just too busy. There's too much news, too much entertainment, too many voices, and we can barely hear the voice of God anymore. And here we come to Anna. I want to show you three things about Anna real quick because I know I know that they've got the turkey and the ham heating up. And I, 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 I know I, I'm, I'm on a time frame. I, I want to show you three things about Anna quickly. She has a life that is spent in worship. Look at the last part of verse 37. The Bible says she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now, now, we read that too fast and we, 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 we go right over it. But she lives a simple, unencumbered life at the temple complex. And she is praying and she is serving and she's fasting as if her entire life is taken up with spiritual activity. Now, the priesthood, the priesthood was divided up into 24 courses. And every Levite that was a priest, he didn't live at the temple. They would have courses or teams set up on a schedule and a priest would typically come to the temple in Jerusalem for two weeks out of the year. He would serve for those two weeks and then he would go back home. But during those two weeks he had to live somewhere. So historians say that around the temple complex they had a, they had a lot of porticos or, or like what we would call efficiency apartments that they would live in for those two weeks while they were there. They didn't live in Jerusalem all the time so they just needed temporary living spaces. And when the Bible says that Anna departed not from the temple, I am imagining that being a widow, older lady, maybe didn't have anywhere else to go, and she has hung around the temple so long, they just gave her one of those places, and that she lives there. 
no husband, presumably no children, uh, probably poor, um, living off of charity and alms, doesn't have a job, and, and so she is, she's just living there. By the way, if she was 18 when she was married, this is guess. If she was 18 when she was married, her husband lived seven years, she's 25 when he died, and then she's either 84 or she's been a widow for 84 years. If she's been a widow for 84 years, this woman's 100, 100 or so. So, so she, she is way up in years. And, and I imagine, I imagine, sanctified imagination, if there is such a thing, that a young 25-year-old girl, uh, there would be some suitors coming along, but for whatever reason, she chose not to remarry. She just felt like, wouldn't have been wrong, but she felt like the best choice for her was just to not remarry and dedicate her life to God. And, and I don't know if she was at the temple at a young age and was there for all of this time, but now at 84, she's there and she's living there and her entire life is wrapped up in temple service. And the Bible says that she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Jews counted the day from 6 o'clock in the evening to 6 o'clock in the evening. That's why in Genesis 1, the evening and the morning the first day, evening and the morning the second day. That's how Jews counted it. So, so she's serving God with fastings and prayers night and day. Fasting, fasting, that's self-denial. Horrible day to talk about fasting today. I understand that. And it's not in an ascetic way of abusing your body. But it's a spiritual way of, of, of denying physical needs so that I can be more focused on spiritual needs. And so she is fasting and, and, and she is praying. And, and sometimes an elderly person feels like that my usefulness has expired and I can't do anything for God. Well, here is a woman that's at least 84 years old and she's serving God with fastings and prayers. There's a lot of things that an elderly person can still do in the ministry, visiting the sick and hospitality. But the greatest ministry that you can have is your prayer. And maybe when she was young, she could work around the temple cleaning and whatever, but all that she has known is temple life, and she's known it so long that she's not going to leave. She has nowhere else to go. She has nothing else that interests her. And here's what I'm trying to say to you, that her life is, into, is wrapped up in serving somebody else, praying and fasting and serving God. And I think that you and I have too busy of a life to live. We have jobs and we have schools and we have careers and we have responsibilities and we have chaos and we have to go here and we have to go there and hurry, hurry, move along, get along and, and got to get there fast and, and can't stop now. That's how we live our lives, is it not? Especially at this time of the year. Have you been to Walmart lately? Huh? It is a hustle, bustle and nobody's suggesting that you quit your job. We all come here and just stay here all day long in a prayer meeting. I'm not, that's, that's not practical. But if you're not careful, you'll become so busy and so preoccupied and so distracted, so driven to success that it becomes our life and we don't have time to worship God. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. If you're too busy to read your Bible, you're too busy. If you're too busy to be faithful to church, you are too busy. And, and, and sometimes we can be faithful to church because that's our religious duty. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But then we don't have a spiritual thought outside of the walls of this church because we're so consumed by the concerns of the world. You, you know what would be wonderful? I think it would be wonderful to think more of heaven than to think of earth. 
to be concerned with laying treasures up there than just laying treasures down here. To live a life of worship, not just a Sunday morning or a Sunday night service, but may every day my mind and my heart be filled with spiritual thoughts and spiritual desires to live every day with Jesus on my mind. She lives a life spent in worshiping. But then notice quickly there is a life spent in waiting. He's part of the godly remnant like Simeon that is waiting for the Messiah to come. They had read all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And though it's been hundreds of years, they still believe those prophecies. They still believe that it's going to come true. Being around the temple and the priesthood, she knew the corruption of Judaism. She knew the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and, and they were all one big body of hypocrites. And she knew, she knew the hope of Israel was not in those religious men. It is not in the zealots, zealots who want to raise up an army and try to drive Roman opposition out. It is not, no, no. Their hope was in the one who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And I think all of that praying that Anna did in the temple, I think she's praying for the Messiah to come. And that day she walks into the courtyard. She sees Simeon holding that little baby, praising God. And in the moment, Anna knew. Nothing special about that baby. There's no halo about that baby. There was nothing messianic looking about that baby. It was just a baby. She's seen a lot of babies coming to the temple, being circumcised and, and all of that. But she knew what Simeon knew. This is the one that we have been waiting for. I, I, I will tell you how to have some peace and some sanity in this world. It's keep looking up. Live with an expectancy in your heart as a child of God that Jesus will come again. They lived in expectancy of his first coming. We live in expectancy of his second coming. And you ought to have the same desire in your heart that Anna and Simeon had. And the greatest thing that could happen in our lifetime is for Jesus to come again. Some of you can't wait till the election. Maybe if we can get Trump in and Trump can save the country. I think he would be better than the, the dementia patient that we have in the White House now. But I'm going to tell you, Trump is not going to save the country. He's not the savior of the world. And while we celebrate his first coming, let's look to the sky and hope for his second coming. I know he wasn't born on Christmas Day, but wouldn't it be cool for him to come back on the same day the world thinks he was born? Well, wouldn't that just be cool? Wouldn't it be great to gather your children around the living room when they're opening up gifts whenever you do that and just about the time they've opened up the last gift before they have time to even break any of them, you hear a trumpet and Jesus comes. Yeah. Sit down tomorrow at dinner table, get to pray and eat the merry supper of the Lamb in heaven. Amen. Live a life waiting, waiting. But then notice quickly, she spent a life in witnessing. Look at the last part of verse 38. She spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She's described as a prophetess. We, we don't know how much prophesying she did. I don't know if she did any prophesying before this. But there's a very small remnant in Jerusalem who believes and hope. And when Anna saw the Christ child and she knew it was him, she couldn't keep it herself. She began to find those of the remnant and to begin to tell them what she has found. 
which would stir up the dormant hope in their life. And I think they believed her because she had the character to back up her testimony. And the Bible says specifically that she spoke to them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She knew who the remnant was. And she knew they had gotten discouraged. And many of them have almost given up any hope. So she began to spread the word. And I'm sure that some of the ungodly priests chuckled. This baby is the king we're looking for. This baby, you're saying that's the Messiah. But it was too good to keep it to herself. Even if it meant facing ridicule for the testimony. She has been waiting and now she is witnessing. And while we're worshiping and while we're waiting, I say that we ought to tell others about the good news of what we have found. I'm telling you the story of Christmas is too good to keep to yourself. You can witness to the lost and you should, but you can also be a witness to the redeemed. Witness to those, witness to those who know Christ that we believe that. And witness to those who don't know Christ that we believe he has come. I was in the store just the other day. Clerk checked me out. And she said, happy holidays. I said, holiday? What, what, what holiday? And she about swallowed her tongue. But she had to say, Christmas. I said, oh, yeah, Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Huh? Yeah. I, I drove through Milton the other night, Friday night, and there's John Stead. John Stead, 80, where you, 80, 80 how, how, old, how old is he? 80 some years old. You don't even know how old your dad is. 80, there he was, standing on the median at night, holding up a scripture sign, rolling down the window, talk to him. Here's this old man. There's a modern day Simeon and Anna waiting for Jesus to come. And while he's waiting, he's out there holding up a scripture sign telling somebody else about Jesus. Hey, you believe this world's messed up? I'm, I'm telling you, this world is in a mess. Tonight, Christmas Eve, tonight, there's going to be a whole lot of people go out and they're going to get drunk. They got so much sorrow going to try to drown all of their troubles in a bottle, hoping that they, when they wake up from the hangover, that somehow all those troubles will be gone. That bottle is not going to cure a thing, but they don't know what else to hold on to. But I have Jesus in my heart. I have no need, I have no desire to drown my sorrows in a bottle or whatever this world has to offer. I live my life with hope and peace and expectancy and promise, an old woman living in a pew, witnessing, worshiping, and waiting. And that's how we ought to live our life as well. Jacob, come, I want you to find 139, born to die. Hey, listen to me this morning, listen to me, and we're almost done. If you're here this morning and you know about him, but you don't know him, there's a world of difference between the two. You can have religion. You can be a good person, moral, no doubt you are. But I'm going to tell you, morality never got anybody to heaven. Good works never got anybody to heaven. Religion, church membership, baptism given, never got anybody to heaven. I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm going to tell you this morning, the only hope that we have for sin, your sin, my sin,
is Jesus Christ. Came to this earth, we believe this. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, offered his life on the cross of Calvary as the ransom for my sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and he died, not for his sins, but he died for mine. And because he died for mine, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The greatest decision that you'd ever make on Christmas is to trust him as your Savior. I turn my life against my sin, against everything that I am, Turn to Him, and I trust Him. Would you stand together with me, Heavenly Father? Thank you for your word this morning.